In the uh, 1970s, Burger King launched a campaign that literally fed the desires and demands of culture. And they launched what has become known as the Have It Your Way campaign. And I was able to find a commercial from the early 70s. The quality of video is very poor. The audio is good. And I think it will uh, help us with where we are this morning. So, Have it your way. Have it your way. Have it your way at Burger King. May I help you, sir? Two Whoppers, two Whopper Juniors, and four Coca-Cola. And would I have to wait long if you made one Whopper with no pickle and no lettuce? No, sir. Hold the pickle, hold the lettuce. Special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. Oh, well, in that case, could I have the other Whopper with extra ketchup? Sure. We can serve your grilled beef Whopper fresh with everything on top of any way you Now that's the way to do things, our way. Have it your way, have it your way at Burger King, Burger King. Yeah, that's the way to have it, your way. The hunger to have it your way has increasingly become the central tenet of our culture. And the result is, whether you're a business or a restaurant, university or college, you're a transportation company, you're a technology company, even churches are driven by the demand to meet the expectation of culture to have it their way in order to be successful. After all, the customer is always right. Now, the principle of all of this is, if you're going to be successful, you have to give people what they want, the way they want it, their way. That's the underwriting principle. Now, as you can imagine, this is a challenge to the kingdom of God. Because the focus in the kingdom of God, this is going to come as a shock to some, just I hope you took your heart medication. The focus is not about having it our way. It's not about catering to our every whim. It's not about having all of our expectations met. It's about laying down our lives so we can find true life in Jesus Christ. Now last week we launched a new series uh, leading up to... um, the Easter season, which we've entitled Crossroads. Now, we've chosen this name for three reasons. The first reason is, well, we're focusing on the journey of Jesus from the book of Matthew, from the moment when he tells his disciples, we need to go now to Jerusalem, where he's going to endure the cross. And so we're calling it Crossroad because this is actually Jesus' road to the cross. It's his crossroad. The second reason we called it Crossroad is that while we recognize that Jesus' journey requires that he embrace 
his cross, we will discover along the way that his followers too are called to embrace their own cross. And so it's Jesus' crossroad. It is our crossroad, the road to our cross. And thirdly, the subtitle of our series, The Decisions We Make, The Direction We Take, is because a crossroad is a point at which a vital decision must be made that is life-altering. And so as we journey this road with Jesus to the cross, we will be faced with vital decisions regarding our own lives that will determine whether our own crossroad journey is successful. Now, the central theme of last week's message was Jesus' affirmation that he was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. He was the anointed one of Israel, which is central. He is central to God's plan of salvation. Today, the central theme is simply there is a substantial difference in knowing that Jesus is the Messiah and understanding what that really means. And so this is important because having the wrong understanding of who Jesus is as Messiah leads to having the wrong expectations of Jesus as the Messiah. So we're going to uh, read together this morning Matthew 16, 21 to 23. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Well, let's unpack this a little bit this morning. The first thing I want us to see is a shocking revelation. In the previous verses that we considered last week, we have Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says, yes, you are right in that. He affirms Peter's assessment and says, for now, I need you to keep this quiet. For now, we don't want this known in the greater public. Jesus tells him that those who understand the truth that he's just spoken, who proclaim this truth in the future, are going to form the foundation of the building of his church. Jesus being the cornerstone, and others will form the building blocks, if you will, of his church. The Apostle Paul addresses this very same idea in Ephesians 2.20, when he says God's household, or the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The same idea. The the building, the church, is built on Christ, but as those who go out in his name proclaim and declare his truth, they become stones in building his church. Well, right after Peter's declaration, Matthew states that Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he needed to go to Jerusalem. That it's imperative for him to go to Jerusalem. I like the way Luke says it. He says, and Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is the beginning of the crossroad. This is the beginning of the road to the cross. 
Now, up until this point, Jesus has focused primarily in the Galilee region. But now he informs them, it's time to move on. It's time to go to Jerusalem. Now, not only will the road lead him to Jerusalem, but he says it's going to lead him to suffering many things. It's going to be a difficult, painful road. His suffering is going to come at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These three groups form this united group of leadership in Israel known as the Sanhedrin. They are the supreme legislative body of the Jews. They are the highest court in Judaism. And they will inflict suffering on him. And ironically, the official leadership of Israel, those who represent the desire, the leading, the the identity of Israel, will actually reject Israel's Messiah. Not only will he suffer, but he says, I'm going to be killed. They're going to cause me to suffer, and they're going to kill me. But he said on the third day, he would be raised by God from the dead. Jesus is attempting to reveal to them that being the Messiah is inseparable from suffering and death. You can't separate the two. Suffering and death are central to what it means to be the Messiah, to what it means to be the Savior of Israel, to what it means to be the Savior of the world. He can't be the Messiah, he can't be the Savior without suffering and death. And so it's interesting that Matthew says, Jesus began to explain. This is not a one-time conversation. This is going to take multiple conversations over a long period of time before the reality of what this means really resonates and sinks in with his disciples who are listening to him. The second thing we have is that Peter rebukes Jesus. Hearing what Jesus just said about suffering and death that was waiting in Jerusalem, Peter is shocked. He's shocked. And so he pulled Jesus aside. I mean, who better to pull Jesus aside? He's just the guy. He's that that smart person in the classroom who puts their hands up and knows the answer every time. And when Jesus said, who do you say I am? Peter got the who do you say that I am question right. And so he's standing in the group and is like, yeah, that's me. I got it right. Well, who better to be the self-appointed spokesperson responsible for helping Jesus find some clarity. Who better to educate Jesus on this issue than Peter, who now apparently knows it all? And so he began to rebuke Jesus, it says. (laughs) There's a fine line between courage and stupidity. And this guy's wavering all over it all the time. He rebukes Jesus. Matthew uses this rebuke in two other incidences. One is, you know, Jesus and the disciples are in the boat. Jesus is having a good nap in the back of the boat. By the way, trust me, there is no better place to nap than on a boat. And Jesus is napping in the back of the boat. And a storm comes up. 
and they're scared for their lives and they wake him up and they said, Jesus, we're going to drown. We're going to die. The storm is going to engulf us and you're sleeping in the back of the boat. And it says, Jesus stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves and everything went calm. The second incident is Jesus is dealing with this boy who, who has who needs to be healed of seizures. And we're led to see here that the seizures are being caused by the fact that he, by a demon. And so Jesus addresses the demon in this boy's life, and it says he rebukes the demon. And as he rebukes the demon, the demon leaves the boy, and the boy is perfectly healed. These are the two other times that Matthew uses this word rebuke. Just as Jesus rebuked the storm, just as Jesus rebuked the demon, Peter is now rebuking Jesus. And so for the Jews and for the disciples, who we know were Jews, being the Messiah meant glory. It meant victory. The long-awaited Messiah was was expected to come. He would destroy all their enemies. He would set them free from all this foreign bondage that they have encountered through the years and currently under Rome. He would establish God's kingdom, God's rule within the nation. For the Jew, the Messiah represented triumph and liberation and overpowering evil. They knew there'd be some opposition along the way. They knew there'd be some hardship, some unpleasantness on the road to majesty and splendor, but not suffering and death. They, they couldn't get their head out that. And so what Jesus is saying about the Messiah is unthinkable to them. It goes against everything that they had ever been taught from the time they were old enough to hear words spoken to them. They have been taught from the beginning about the Messiah, and this does not connect at all. Everything they've ever expected of the Messiah just went out the window. And so this triggers a bold response from Peter. He says, Lord, come over here. i got to talk to you for a minute. Now listen to me. Listen to me. Never. Never, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. What you just said back there? Like seriously, this is never going to happen to you. Because from Peter's perspective, death is not a goal to be fulfilled. It's a disaster to be averted. It's the same guy who pulls his sword in the garden, right? Jesus is playing out the story and Peter's trying to make it stop. He doesn't get it. It's not just undesirable for the Messiah that this would happen. It's unthinkable. And so here you have this little recipe. You have Peter who's incredibly stubborn, thick. Peter who has a real good dose of ignorance, doesn't understand at all, and enough of a good heart to promote him to do something. And what you get at the end of the day is this great big batch, this great big batch of arrogance. This great big batch of arrogance as he rebukes Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus rebukes Peter. Now, I want you to note Jesus' response to Peter. Peter says, never, Lord. 
Jesus doesn't go, Peter, Peter, Peter. You just don't get it, you silly disciple. You just don't get it, silly you. Oh, what am I going to do with you, Peter? No. Jesus responds with some unusually strong words. Peter says, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Well, why is Jesus saying get behind him? Is he reiterating? Okay, let me remind you, I'm the master, you're the disciple. When I said follow me, that literally means fall in behind me. You've lost your place. You're arrogant. You don't get it. Now you need to get back in position. Make for a good argument, but that's not what he's saying. The language is different here. Getting behind someone in this context with this language was considered to be a place of insignificance where one would, could be ignored. A position of humility. What Jesus is saying to Peter is this, get out of my sight. Get out of my sight. I don't even want to see you. I don't want to lay eyes on you. Just get, get behind me. Get away from me. Well, why would he call Peter Satan? I mean, there's enough to say, get out of my sight. But get out of my sight, Satan? Wow. Because Jesus' suffering was central to being the Messiah, and we said that the two were inseparable, Jesus' death was central to God's plan. Now, Satan knew this. Now, we have some really bad theology, and I blame Carmen. You know, the singer, the champion? I blame that in all the dramas. I blame that. We have some very bad theology, as if Satan's goal was to get Jesus on the cross and how he reveled when Jesus' last breath was finally breathed. I think that's really bad theology. I'm sorry, Carmen, I don't mean to throw you under the bus. Satan knew the plan. And he didn't want the cross to happen. And so to avoid the death was to associate with the work of Satan. Satan's goal is to get Jesus to fail and not make it to the cross. Peter is saying, let's not go to the cross. They're in the same camp right now. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, all you have to do is read the temptation narrative. I believe it's chapter 4. The third temptation of, by Satan was an attempt to get Jesus to take the easy, spectacular path to glory. We're told that Satan took him up to the top of the highest mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the splendor of all these kingdoms and said, listen, I will give you all of this and all you have to do is bow down and worship me. Satan was offering Jesus a cross Less victory. I can give you all this, Jesus, without the cross. Just bow down and worship me, and we don't have to do any of this other stuff. This is all you have to do. He was offering Jesus the position of kingship without suffering. Satan never wanted Jesus to go to the cross. Satan knew that the cross was victory. The cross was his defeat. It would be his demise. And Peter, in this moment, is suggesting the same. 
Jesus, there must be a cross-less solution to victory, certainly. Jesus, there must be an easier path to power than what you're suggesting. Jesus, there must be a way to get the pain without, get, get the gain without the pain. Jesus, let's do it that way. Let's do it the easy way. Let's do it the crossless way. Now, what's really interesting here is that in a matter of a couple verses, Peter instantly goes from being the rock, good for you, Peter, you're going to be a rock in building my church, the one who proclaims truth, to now you're going to be a a stumbling block. You're going to be a rock. You're being a rock that causes someone to fall down, to fail, to give up. You came from being a rock to build up my church to a stone that's standing in the way of my church. In a couple of verses. A couple of verses ago, Jesus says, the only way you can know that, Peter, is that God told you. You're speaking the words of God. And two verses later, he says, Peter, you're speaking the words of Satan. Two words later, maybe a good reason why we shouldn't hire so-called prophets to speak into our lives. Yeah, maybe they get it right the first time, but maybe the second time is Satan. I don't know, I'm just saying. Like, I I see some pretty solid biblical evidence here of inconsistency. Right? Within two verses. How is this possible? How is it possible that you can go from having the mind of God to the mind of Satan in two verses? How is it possible That you can be a building block and two verses later be a stumbling block. How is this possible? Jesus told him, he says, you don't have the mind of God. You don't understand. It's like the, the Old Testament scripture. My ways are higher than your ways. You don't get it, Peter. You don't understand God's will. You don't understand God's plan. You don't understand God's will. You can't see the bigger picture. All you can see is right here, what's right in front of you in this moment, and you don't understand. He had good intentions. But we all know where the road of good intentions leads, right? He had good intentions, but he's thinking in human terms. And he's wrong. He's wrong. He goes from right to wrong in Olympic record time. So, how does this help us? Well, there are th- I want us to consider three insights that we see reflected. The first, I've called Easy Street. Jesus' road to securing our salvation on the cross was a road of suffering and rejection and accusation and misunderstanding and death. His crossroad was not an easy road, yet all that took place was absolutely necessary for God's purposes to be accomplished. Now, might I suggest to us today that according to Scripture, the road of bearing our own cross for Jesus is not intended to be an easy road either. It too is a road that includes suffering and rejection and accusation and people misunderstanding us and death to our personal ambitions and desires and wants. I wonder if at times we're like Peter. We become aware of 
what Jesus is saying, what's required of us on the crossroad, but we don't like what we're hearing. We don't like what we're learning. We want a more acceptable option. Our intentions are good, but our conclusions demonstrate, like Peter, that we don't really get it. We want a more sanitized version of following Jesus. That's what we prefer. Okay, I I hear that one. That's a good one. That's a hard one. Okay, is is there like a, you know, can it be like some other things? Like the diet pop version or the light version or the fat-free version? Is there something a little more preferable here? In the 1970s, church leadership identified an alarming reality. Church attendance was in significant decline and trending downward fast. People were no longer making church attendance a priority. In reaction to what was happening in the culture, the church growth movement was born. And the focus of the church growth movement was simply this. What can we do to stop this trend and get people back into coming to church? How can we stop this? Now, I would suggest their intentions were good. But I believe the the movement missed the point. It was never about getting people to come back to church. It's always been about helping people come to Jesus. Well, you say, well, it's the same thing, Pastor. Actually, I don't think it is. I think there's a difference. One says, build it and they will come. And so the focus is on programming. The focus is on having the right building with the right amenities and the right facilities and and the right, you know, appeal. The focus is on the right events. We'll run this event and this special event in an attempt to get them to come. We'll We'll change how we do worship in a way that we think is more appealing to those that we want to come back to church. And we'll preach in a different style. We'll change our preaching to be more reflective of what will draw people back to church. And we'll focus on the quality of our talent. And in fact, when we run our events, we will actually hire secular organizations and people who are not believers, who are extremely talented, to come and perform in our events so the quality is really good. And the focus was, come and see. Come and see. And so even to this day, I get emails from media companies. Here's some good graphics you can use for invite a friend to church Sunday. Come back to church Sunday. And I'm just shaking my head. I'm thinking, like 1970s was a long time ago, people. Are you still not getting it? Come and see. Build it and they will come. Well, guess what? We built it and they didn't come. They didn't come. The other one says, no, it's not come and see, it's go and be. It's go and be. That's the difference in inviting people to church versus inviting people to Jesus. Go and be. Go where the people are and make disciples. Now, don't get me wrong. I love church community. I love doing this with you on Sunday morning. I do. I love it when we come together. 
And it's important. It's important because we're encouraged in this environment. And that's a good thing. We're strengthened here. We're reminded that Jesus is with us in the fire. That's a good thing. We build relationships in here that are critical to walking this road. So we're not walking it alone. But we're walking with fellow believers in Jesus. It's really important. We get to take care of each other. That's really important. We get to worship God corporately. Not just sing songs, but be reminded of truth and to experience his presence in a life-changing way. Coming to church is important. We get to share communion. We get to dedicate babies. We get to to perform funerals. We get to, uh, you know, uh, share in baptism. It's wonderful stuff. But it all leads to equipping us to walk out those doors at the end of our gathering and take us out there to all of these different places outside of the Sunday context so that we can make disciples wherever we find ourselves. That's the difference in inviting people to church and inviting people to Jesus. They're hugely different. And so in an attempt to grow the church, we appealed to the desires of the ones that we wanted to come. And we didn't want to scare people off. And this is not theory or a history lesson. I've lived, I've done this for 30 years. I've done this for half of Ben Laird's life life as of today. I have. Happy birthday, Ben. And all those around the world who will be listening by Monday, they wish you a happy birthday too. We didn't want to scare people off. So we became, quote, seeker sensitive. We got to lessen our emphasis on repentance. We don't want to scare people off. We got to, you know, we don't want to ask for too much change too quickly. Let's avoid topics like obedience and surrender and disciple making and mission and, oh my God, let's not talk about sacrificial giving and tithing. Oh, if we say that, they're gone for sure. Let's not talk about that. Giving our time. Serving, oh, let's not talk about those things. Let's not talk about the fact that when you come to Jesus, you have to reorient your whole life around the kingdom. That's too much for people. That you got to actually reconsider your priorities, your goals. That's a lot. Let's ease them into all of that. Let's take our time. We don't want to turn them off with too much, too fast. You know what the result is? Much of what we see in church culture today is the fruit of these efforts. Minimal salvation growth. One in every new person to a church is a convert. The other nine came from somewhere else. Church culture of entitlement where people come if if they get what they want. They come when they want. They pick and choose what they want. I'll commit to that. I'll take one of these. I don't want that one. We've created an option for following Jesus that is crossless. And so my point is this. There are no shortcuts to following Jesus. In case you haven't picked up on it, this is not a seeker-sensitive sermon this morning. There are no shortcuts to following Jesus. 
If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to repent. And that means you have to be sorry for life without him and decide you're going to live your life different. If you're going to come to Jesus, it's going to take a big dose of humility. It's going to take surrender. It's going to take obedience. It's going to take commitment. It's going to take sacrificial giving of our whole lives and all that we own. Being a follower of Jesus is not an easy life. It just isn't. It's painful. It's a difficult road. You're going to face battles as a follower of Jesus that you would never have faced if you ignored him. But we don't choose to follow Jesus because it was easy. We didn't choose to follow Jesus because it was convenient. We chose to follow Jesus because he's the only way to salvation. We chose to follow Jesus because we're lost without him. We chose to follow Jesus because, like the parable in Scripture, that treasure in the field was so valuable that we were willing to sell everything that we had to buy that field to get that treasure. That Jesus meant so much that nothing else compared. Nothing else compared. The cross road is a difficult road, but it is the only road that leads to victory. It's not easy street. Secondly, a work in progress. I noted earlier how interesting it is that Matthew says, Jesus began to explain. This is not a one conversation explanation. This is going to take a long time. Folks, the truth is, understanding who Jesus is, understanding kingdom principles, trying to get our heads around God's plan and intentions, it takes a while to figure out. In fact, the people who say to me, enough already of where you're trying to take the church, I get it. The fact that you're saying that to me is the number one evidence that you're not getting it. Because it's hard to get your head around. It takes a long time. And I'm not sure if we're ever really going to get there this side of eternity. Now sometimes we can think we got it all figured out. And then it becomes clear. We don't understand it at all. The key is to be a follower of Jesus that can shift in your thinking. That can grow in your understanding. That you're not afraid to ask questions. It bothers me when people say, you shouldn't read that book by that person. What are we? Hitler during World War II? Let's burn everything we don't want you to read? I mean, come on. Don't we trust ourselves enough to be able to read something and make a decision? Of course we can. Think. Grow in your understanding. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to admit when you get it wrong. It's never too late to change. Sometimes I'm going through my office and I'll find a sermon I preached like a long time ago. So out of curiosity, I'll read it. You know, as my preaching developed through the years, like, you know, and I'm reading it and I'm thinking, I can't believe I preached this. I don't even believe that anymore. I would never ask a congregation to do that. No, it was a long time ago. So everything I've asked of you is good, okay? Just to be clear, it's all good still. But I'm thinking, oh, My intentions were good, but I totally misunderstood that passage. But years later, when I understood it, I realized, yeah, I was I I really I really blew it there. 
Because your understanding of God's kingdom shifts over time. You grow. There were activities that were a priority for me early in ministry that I wouldn't give five minutes to now. In fact, not only would I not do them, I'd fight against them. I would. I would. You're all wondering what they are. Yeah, I'm not going to put that out there. But one of them rolls around on October 31st. There are doctrinal positions that I held early in my life in ministry because of my upbringing, because I was told what to believe. Those things have shifted through the years as I've come to understand that there was a misunderstanding of Scripture that shaped those beliefs. And they were taken out of their true context. Folks, I've been around long enough, not as long as Ben, but I've been around long enough that I sat in the Pentecostal conferences when the issue of ordaining women was being debated. I sat there. And for us, it should have been a no-brainer because women were our starting point. They did all the work, and then when we organized, the men took over. Typical, right? Women were the backbone of Pentecostalism. You, You wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for women. And we were saying, yeah, well, we'll let them pass. They were pastoring churches on their own. They were, you know, whatever. But when it came to that certificate, the man was ordained, but the woman was fully approved. And we sat in that and worked through it. And we came to the conclusion, how dumb is this? How dumb is this? That God clearly calls women equally to men. That any woman can stand in this pulpit and preach with anointing and authority to men. And be God's instrument as much as any man. There's got to be one woman who thinks I'm right on that. Seriously. I sat there when we debated the issue of what to do with the divorced people. These lepers now that never had hope of forgiveness or a future because of our stands. What are we going to do? And all of a sudden, we began to study the words of Jesus from Scripture, and we came to conclusions. I also stood in the meeting where, where the movement I was a part of said, we see clearly in Scripture this is what we should be doing, but we think it'll cause too much trouble in our churches, so we're going to leave it alone. One of the few times I stood in conference and said, the basis of Pentecostalism is that we say, if the Word of God says it, we don't care who else believes it, we live it. And in time, we changed. We changed. We admitted. We got it wrong. We got it wrong. And we'll change. This past week, we received the news that Billy Graham died. You know, I had the joy of reading some of his story, and I discovered that Billy Graham grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home. And when he decided to respond to God's call to full-time ministry, he went to a fundamentalist Bible school. But he wasn't there very long before he discovered, this is not for me. I don't believe what they believe. This is what my parents taught me, but this is not my interpretation of Scripture of how to live. And not only did he leave that Bible college, he went to a different Bible college and changed denominations. Why? Because the one he was in did not reflect his understanding of what God's Word was saying. And that allowed him to become one of the most amazing powerful, impacting people of touching all cultures, all religions, all generations because of the shift. 
Many would have accused him at the time of compromising. Oh, you're compromising. You're softening the gospel. You're, you know, you're doing, no, no. The gift of aging, the gift of further education. People will say to me, you know, what's your view now that you've attained, attained a higher level of education? I've only come to realize I, I know less now than I thought I did before I started. Aging has taught me that too. Time spent as a follower of Jesus is a reminder that we really don't know nearly as much as we thought we did. We have good intentions. We're doing our best. But we always had to be open to a clearer understanding of God's word. God's word doesn't exist so we can use it to prove what we believe. God's word exists so we can read it and apply what it says. And those can be two very different things. Folks, we're a work in process. We're, we're wet cement. We haven't arrived yet. And I fully expect, me, I'm going to stand before Jesus someday and I'm going to realize, and you're here to hear it, I'm going to realize that I was wrong about some perspectives. Now you heard it. You heard it here first. That he's going to say to me, (laughs) you know that one thing, hey, (laughs) yeah, you totally missed the boat on that. You didn't get that at all. You didn't get that at all. Work in progress. Finally, a stumbling block. The Bible uses the term stumbling block in many contexts, but always as a reference to causing others to be hindered in their pursuit of Jesus. And so as followers of Jesus, we never want to be responsible for keeping people from Jesus. Now, I've seen that in my many years of being in the church too. There are many ways that we can be a stumbling block if we're not careful, and I just want to highlight two this morning. One of the primary ways that we can be a stumbling block to keeping others from Jesus is when the actions of our lives are contrary to what we say we believe. Now, there's a word for that. It's called hypocrite. The word hypocrite has its roots in ancient Greek theater. When an actor would be playing a part in a local play, and as an actor, of course, they're portraying a character on stage that's different than who they were, and actors were called hypocrites. Not negatively, that was... That's what they were. They were playing a part different than who they were. But this term became prominent within Christianity, referring to people whose actions are not consistent in who they really were. The world's greatest criticism of the church is that it's filled with hypocrites. And sadly, there are many of us. There are. Statistically, people still like Jesus. He ranks really high. People are really interested in him. They think he's great. It's the church they don't like. They don't like the church. Why? Because they believe the church is filled with hypocrites. They're turned off by people who claim to love everyone, but reject people because of certain lifestyles. They're turned off by people who say how a Christian should live, but then live contrary to what they're saying they believe. And folks, the truth is, it's the people that are closest to us that see us the best and not the strangers that we're impacting. It's our children. I can't tell you what I would give and pay to go back and do parenting all over again. I've been a hypocrite more than you want to know. I know you don't believe that, but I'm, I'm feeling an amen from the front seat. Our spouses know We're hypocrites. Our families know. The people we work with know. The students at school know. 
Our friends know. If we become hypocrites in their eyes, what have we accomplished for Jesus? Nothing. And folks, let's not let ourselves off the hook. We've all been hypocrites. And we've got to be careful. Because there's a lot at stake. And the second way is, well, a while back we talked about the difference in a good idea and a God idea. A good idea comes from good intentions, but originates in the wisdom and desires of men. A God idea originates from the heart of God. Now, good ideas are often pleasing and reasonable. God ideas are usually shocking, risky, and out of the box. I found myself on both sides of a good idea versus a God idea. I sat in rooms where people shared what they said was a God idea, and I was so smug and smart and arrogant that I thought they were making an absolute disaster, concluding that they were wrong, and that they wanted, what they wanted to do was wrong, and I was right. Only to discover later that I was wrong, and they were right. Again, admin counsel, that has never happened here. I've also been on the side where I believed that I had heard from God, and had been responsible faithfully responding to him, only to be told by well-meaning people that I was wrong. Two quick examples. You've heard me talk about the resignation of my first ministry position. Now, what I probably didn't highlight during that story is that the person who was my mentor, most significant mentor up to that point in my life of being now close to 24 years of age, he dedicated me as a baby He hired me as a teenager to work in his office. He mentored me as I was going through Bible college. He married us when we got married. And he was now attending the church I was pastoring in his retirement. And when I told him that I had wrestled with God, that I knew that I knew that I knew to my core that I had to leave and that I had submitted my resignation, he looked at me and said, you're wrong. This is a good church. You're making more than the youth pastor at the Queensway. Just to let you know, everybody was making more than the youth pastor at the Queensway at that time. You got student loans and you're paying them off. And you're going to resign from a perfectly good church and a growing ministry and a decent salary and you don't know where you're going? Now this is a guy now who's in his 70s, who's ministered his whole life, who's been a district superintendent, a leader of leaders. I got to tell you, that was shocking for me. I didn't know what to do with that. Oh man, I must be wrong. But in my heart, I knew I wasn't wrong. So I did it. I've been always kind of stupid that way. And I did it. And later in conversation, he apologized to me for that. He said, you know what? I got that wrong. And I'm really glad you did what you did. I remember my second youth ministry, I'd been in there for a while, I had assessed the land, and I said, you know what? I said to my senior pastor, I don't want a youth group that plays games and sings these silly action songs, and I do a little devotional, and then we all go to someone's house and eat food till 11 o'clock at night. I don't want a youth ministry like that. I want a youth ministry that does discipleship and trains people to lead worship, and, and we pray together, and we go out, and, and we started traveling uh, across the province, helping little struggling churches. We blow in for the weekend with a full ministry team, and we reach out into the community with them and do things they couldn't do on their own, which led to overseas stuff. And, you know, we wanted, I said, I don't want a youth group, I want a youth ministry. And there were two young adult guys who were amazing, and to this day, they are fine men of God, even to this day. 
And they were a part of the leadership there for many years. And they said, can we take you out for breakfast? When people are offering to go out to eat and to pay as a pastor, there's a reason. Most people don't expect to pay because the church can pay for it. This is sweet because from now on, I'm never paying for a meal again. (laughs) And so they sat me down in this, this little restaurant. And they begin to tell me that my vision for the youth ministry was wrong and why, and I needed to stop. And it was one of those moments where you felt like saying, get behind me, Satan. And I said, guys, I'm sorry that you don't understand. But my job is to hear from God and do what he says, and I believe this is right, and this is what we're going to do. And I appreciate your opinion, but we're not, we're not changing anything. Well, about two years later, they took me out again. This time it was to apologize. And they said, Pastor, we got it so wrong. We're so happy with what we're seeing here. God's doing so many exciting things and we're sorry that we ever did that. Now folks, I'm not suggesting that we not think things through for ourselves. That we become mindless people who just do whatever. You know, someone else uh, says, well, God told me. Oh, well, how can I argue with that? I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting accepting what other people say without processing it. I want you to think I'm not suggesting that we not hold each other accountable. We should. But what I'm saying is we need to be cautious on judging the motives and plans and actions of others because perhaps we are seeing it in terms of what we think is a good or a bad idea when in fact we need to see whether or not it's a God idea. And sometimes, like me, you come to conclusions and you realize maybe, just maybe, there's a chance we're not seeing it right. Maybe, just maybe. I'm going to invite our worship team back. Folks, there's a substantial difference in knowing that Jesus is the Messiah and acknowledging that and understanding what it really means. The road to following Jesus is not an easy road, but it's the only road worth traveling. And grasping an understanding of the kingdom doesn't come instantly. It's a process. It takes time. It takes humility and time. And let's be careful that we don't become a stumbling block, hindering people, hindering God's work. Because we don't believe that it's a God idea. Because our wisdom says differently. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. You know, I love free samples. Like Costco, if you time it right, it's a date with your wife. I mean, you walk out of there and you are stuffed. And if you're not, $1.50 for a hot dog and drink and you are over the top. But the frustrating part about the samples is you just get a taste. Now, if you're really good, I'm not going to say if I am or if I'm not, you might be able to get back there two to three times before the person doing the samples recognizes you're a repeat offender. But the point is, if you want the full experience, it's going to cost you. Or who doesn't like a trial version of software and you're enjoying it and you think this is great and then you get the reminder that in three days it's going to shut down unless you pay the subscription. I don't want to pay the subscription. I want it for nothing. I want it my way. 
And they say, unless you pay $29.95, you ain't getting it your way. And these are the attitudes that we sometimes bring into our walk with Jesus. Some of us have been living our lives off samples. We're just grazing on samples because we don't want to pay the price. We're spiritually cheap. We're spiritually cheap. I want the cross-less road. I want the road that doesn't have the suffering or the giving or the sacrifice or the obedience. I want the easy street. But you can't have it unless you pay the cost. You can't have the benefit without the cost. Is Christianity free? Yes. But it's very expensive. You can't afford it. And it's going to cost you a lot. And I want to challenge you on this crossroad as we're making our way to Golgotha's Hill on Easter Sunday morning to ask yourself some tough questions. Am I going to be a sample taker for the rest of my life? And cheap out on what it could be like to experience the full value of following Jesus. Am I going to try and find a way to find a back door to get another trial going so I don't have to pony up to pay for the long-term version? Today is a day when we decide. (laughs) Jesus says, I'm going. Are you coming? Are you with me? I'm going to pay a price. It's going to cost you something too. The cross that I'm going to bear, you can't bear. But there is one that you have to bear, and I can't bear yours. Only you can. And we're going to hear about that next Sunday. I challenge you. The decisions we make, the direction we take, starts here in this moment today. We're at the crossroads. We're at the crossroads. Lord Jesus, this morning, we thank you that you have invited us to walk the most rewarding, victorious, freeing road that we could ever experience in this life. And we recognize and you acknowledge that it's not an easy road. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for those who don't want to stay focused. It's for those who are willing to lay down their lives that they might find their lives in you. And so I just pray for all of us in this place today. Lord, I pray that if in any way we've tried to lessen what you're asking of us, that you would forgive us. That you would help us to see what it is you're asking. And I pray that we'd be willing to do it because we know We've had moments where we've done the difficult moment of obedience and have found the reward in you. And I pray that you would remind us today that the only life worth living is living for you. It's walking this road with you. So Lord, would you help us? Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, it's sweet to trust in you. Oh, for grace to trust you more. God, that's our prayer this morning. We haven't arrived. We recognize it. 
We get stuff wrong. We're confused. We misunderstand, but we love you. We want to serve you. God, help us to do what we need to do to respond to what you're calling us to so we can know the greatest adventure in this life. Lord, thank you for your cross. Thank you for inviting us to be a part of it. Thank you for saving us, using us. And Lord, this morning as we've gathered here, we've, we've worshipped you. We've sensed your presence. We've allowed the, the weight and the pain of our lives to be released in your presence. We've encouraged one another. We've prayed with each other. We've heard from your word. And now as we go out, Lord, I pray that we would go out better equipped than ever to live what you've called us to live, to be who you've called us to be, to touch the lives of those around us, faithfully serving you and representing you. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning.